0: Modern smartphones are sleek and thin, but they're also fragile and expensive. If you're really careful, you may use it until you're ready to upgrade without shattering the glass. But if you look around, you'll see most phones wrapped in a case for protection. Our personal data is even more valuable than the device it's stored on, and it deserves just as much protection. The work that I do requires me to travel a lot, which means I'm frequently to connect, connected to unfamiliar networks. Nefarious hackers can make up to $1,000 selling the data of each of their victims on the dark web, and there are cheap hardware and software tools readily available that let even a smart middle schooler snatch your data without you even noticing. A virtual private network, or VPN, like ExpressVPN, creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your devices and the servers that you're transmitting data to and from. When you're you're sitting at the airport gate area, or airline lounge, or even your hotel room, those Wi-Fi networks aren't secure. Your bits are flying through the air, and whether you're checking your bank account balance, sending data to a client, or just checking your email, bad actors can snatch up your usernames, passwords, and everything else you send and receive if it's not encrypted. The layers of security used by ExpressVPN would take over a billion years to expose by bad guys with some of the most powerful supercomputers. ExpressVPN Trusted Server Technology also runs each session in memory in a unique virtual space that is wiped clean as you end your session with none of your data ever written to a hard drive, so there's no residue for anyone to recover about what you were doing after the fact. ExpressVPN runs on almost all devices, including Windows, Mac, iOS, Linux, Android, streaming devices like Chromecast, Roku, Firestick, and Apple TV, and there's also a Chrome browser extension. It's super simple to use. Once you install ExpressVPN, it's one click to establish a secure encrypted tunnel with servers in 105 countries around the world. I've personally been paying for and using ExpressVPN for years on all of my personal devices. When I, started, when I first started using VPNs for work more than 20 years ago, they were often slow and unstable and had to be restarted frequently. But with ExpressVPN, data speeds are virtually unchanged from running fully exposed, so you can just turn the VPN on and leave it on. I often get materials from clients and companies that are are under embargo or NDA, and if it leaks out, I can get into some trouble. But even if I just wanted to reach back to my personal server to grab some files, check my email, or watch something that's only available on one of my streaming services at home while I'm out of the country, ExpressVPN lets me do it all securely. Your data is valuable. Don't let bad actors steal it and potentially misuse it. Secure your online data today by visiting ExpressVPN. Dot com slash wheelbearings That's e x com s s v p n dot.com/slash/wheelbearings, and you can get an extra three months free when you sign up. Expre- Expressvpn com/slash/wheelbearings. And thanks to ExpressVPN for supporting Wheelbearings.
1: This is Wheelbearings. I'm Dan Roth.
0: And I'm Sam Al-Samad
1: And so this is the first episode of 2019. We made it across the. Uh, we, pa- the we passed solstice.
0: another arbitrary moment in time. Yeah,
1: <laughs> right. Time is a, time is a construct. Um, time zones. Well, time are invented, time right? is real.
0: Time time is real, but sure. the but measurements of time are a construct.
1: Well, yes, that that's true. Uh, time zones were invented by the railroads. Yes. And it's fascinating.
0: I, I know it, we, we didn't have time zones until the what middle of the 19th century. And yep. and now, you know, there's there's a lot of moves to get rid of them again, um, because, you know, as, as a uh, is an excuse to also get rid of um, daylight savings time which doesn't actually save any daylight. You still get the same amount of daylight, regardless of what time the clock says.
1: Well, and the hilarious thing about daylight savings time was that uh, the argument that it was developed for farmers. And it's yeah. Like, you know what? Like, the cows need to be milked when the cows need to be milked. <laughs> That's <it's> right. <laughs> that, that,
0: whole, that, whole, that whole argument or, or the argument that you're saving energy with daylight saving time is just idiotic.
1: I don't know. It's I I do like every year around my birthday I get an extra hour back. <laughs> kind of um that that that's usually that's kind of It nice. seems like it anyway. Yeah. It makes me feel less guilty for sleeping in for an extra hour. Anyway, uh <laughs> let's talk about cars. Um we're both actually you have the 2019 Nissan Altima uh Platinum all-wheel drive. That that's a pretty interesting model because it's it's big for Nissan. They have been talking it up and it's pretty unique in the class now that it offers all-wheel drive. A, a dying class of vehicles, but that's that's well it's me. it's
0: it's somewhat unique. Um it, actually the um you know the Fusion has had all-wheel drive uh ever since the Actually, going back to the previous generation, the current the current generations had it all along. And then the previous generation, they had it on the Sport. So going back to about 2009, I think they had all wheel drive on the Ford Fusion.
1: I think that's right. Well, one of the first one of the first press cars I got was a Fusion with all wheel drive. And it was it was a it was a first gen Fusion, if I think. If I recall. So it was even before the mid cycle okay. refresh.
0: Um, All right. Anyway. Yeah, I couldn't remember how far back it went, but they, they definitely had it for for a while.
1: It goes back. But, <laughs>
0: but at, at, at any rate, um, yeah, you know, the the uh, the Ultima is the the newest entry in the uh, midsize sedan class or, or at least what. Well, yeah, actually, it's the the Ultima actually is still classed as a mid mid-sized sedan, uh, according to the uh, the epa size classifications which are based on the the combination of interior passenger volume and interior trunk or cargo volume um and we'll we'll get to that a little bit uh later on Are those also
1: arbitrary measurements kind of like time
0: um (laughs) yes they well well yes as, as all such things are they are they are somewhat arbitrary um i think the if i recall correctly the threshold is uh, if the combined total is 110 uh, cubic feet between 110 and 119 cubic feet is midsize um, between 100 and 109 cubic feet is compact uh, below 100 cubic feet is subcompact um, and greater than 120 cubic feet is um, is full size uh, or large car uh, as uh, EPA calls them and the Um, the, the Altima, the current Altima comes in at about 116 cubic feet, which is a little bit less than the, uh, um, Toyota Camry and the Honda Accord, which both actually top that 120. Um, but that, you know, that, that whole, the, using the, the combination of passenger volume and cargo volume is, has always been kind of a weird way to measure this. Um, and in fact, you know, it's it's one of the strange things about uh, for example, the Tesla Model S. You know Tesla has always called the Model S a large car, a full-size car, um, because its combined uh, cargo and passenger volume is one hundred and twenty cubic feet. so it just hits that that threshold that but that includes the front, right? It includes the frunk, uh, but it also includes, you know, the fairly large cargo area you know, because it's a five door hatchback. It's got a fairly large cargo area. Uh, the frunk is only uh, about three cubic feet, I think, three or three or four cubic feet. So it's not it's not that big. Um, you know, it's enough for you know a couple of you know a, a couple of soft duffel bags or you know a couple of bags of groceries, which is about all you can fit in there. Um, but you know, the passenger volume of the Model S is only 94 cubic feet, which actually makes it comparable uh, to most. Um, you know, compact, premium compact sedans like the Audi A4 and the BMW 3 Series, uh, as opposed to, you know, Tesla likes to compare it against the BMW 7 Series and the Mercedes S-Class, you well, know, as large cars. But those yeah, cars are way bigger than the the S.
1: On, on the outside, that that's what surprises me. On the outside, yeah. the S is physically as big as big it darkens as you know it throws as much shade as those cars but on the inside yeah it's i'm surprised it's that yeah, it's
0: not actually very space efficient Huh. Um, and i think and and the the same thing really applies to the uh to the model three as well and i think part of that is because the floor is actually a little bit higher because of the battery under the floor so you actually lose some volume in there but you know what I didn't drive a Tesla this week.
1: No, that's true. You <laughs> drove the Altima. So, so,
0: so we've gone off on a complete tangent for the last couple of minutes here. So I drove an Altima, which you know is one of the the smaller uh, vehicles in this segment. You know the the D segment, CD segment. Um, you know which also includes, as I said, the Fusion, the, the Accord, the Camry, the Accord, and the Camry have been the the two top sellers in the segment for better After. part of the last 20 years yeah um actually more than 20 years now um you know there, were, there have been a few years when the accord was number one but it's mostly been camry uh during that since the mid-90s and um in recent years the the Altima has moved up to number three um and until its sales started tanking in the last couple of years the the fusion was number four the what's Interesting, you know, this new Altima debuted uh, in the fall, so it came out about uh, I think about October went on sale, September October went on sale, and the design is you know inspired by the uh, the V Motion Two concept that we saw in twenty seventeen in early twenty seventeen at the Detroit Auto Show, um, although it's much more toned down. Than that particular car, um, but it, you know that that car that concept, you know, kind of gave a hint as to the direction of the next generation of Nissan's from a design perspective. And you know this this Altima looks quite a bit different from the previous generation Altima, which was much more you know softer curves. You know it had had creases, but um, you know they were they were you know much larger radius creases. They weren't the, the edges weren't as sharp as what you see on this car. And what's interesting is, you know, it's, it's virtually the same size as the previous generation Ultima. But when you look at it in isolation, it looks so much larger. It, it's got more visual heft to it. Well, it has uh, that
1: giant grill now.
0: It has that giant grill, you know, and also, you know, the, the body sides, um, you know, are, they just, they, mm. they look bulkier.
1: Yeah, they're like slab. Where I think there was more significant coke bottle to the to the yeah. uh, doors and stuff. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. It looks a lot more cohesive though. the The old Ultima had kind of evolved over two or three generations to what it what it became, and it was a little disjointed. In some ways, I mean, I kind of like the old Ultima, but um,
0: yeah. And and this one's this one's not bad. I I, I don't dislike it, I, but I don't know some something about it's just not quite gelling for me yet uh and and you know over time as i get more used to the that look it it may you know when i saw the concept two years ago you know the concept you know looked much more exciting visually exciting than this one and you know i think they they perhaps you know they perhaps toned down the the sculpting of the body sides in particular maybe a little bit too much and you know you know compared to that concept you know that concept would have been very difficult to actually manufacture. Well, that's usually uh, the case. Yeah. You know um you know and but I, I guess I would have liked to have seen you know maybe a little bit more contouring to the sides on the production model than what we actually got.
1: Well I that, think too like uh I'm looking at it the the proportions look good but that's always the difficult part too is to take concept proportions and fit them onto yeah the production hardware. So I, I think they've done a, a decent job, but I can I can see what you're saying.
0: Yeah, you know, and there's um, there's one other issue that I had with the exterior of the Altima, and if you look at the hood, you know the the hood is done differently on this one. And it's done like a lot of newer cars where the cut line for the hood, you know, rather than being on the the, the horizontal surface on the top. Um, you know, the hood is more of a clamshell and the cut line um for the hood now extends, you know, there's a there's a straight line yeah. that goes across the top edge of the the headlights and then extends into that continues on into that crease along the the shoulder line. And that's fine, you know, I have no no problem with that. Uh, I think that looks fine, you know, and that's uh, increasingly common. And part of the part of the reason why uh, they do that, actually, on a lot of cars is uh, it it allows that hood area that the edges of the hood to deform a little bit more. And it's actually better for pedestrian protection. So if the car hits a pedestrian and the the pedestrian goes onto the hood, it adds a, a little more area of potential deformation, to absorb some of that energy. So it, it, it doesn't, it, it potentially doesn't uh, cause a severe injury to the pedestrian.
1: So um, is that because like the, that, that gap will close up. So it sort of crushes down and provides I, more support.
0: Um, yeah. I mean, it, it crushes down um, and, you know, it can also crush, it, it can also splay outwards. Yeah. Um, you know, so like if a flat if you, if you, panel that just has right. one
1: dimension to deform.
0: Yeah. Oh. You know, when when you have the, when the cut, if the cut line is on the horizontal surface, you know, that those fender sides are going to be more rigid than the, the edges of the hood when it's wrapped over in this way. Huh. And, and that all that's fine. I have you know, no issue there. But one thing I noticed when I first got in the car is when you're from, uh, from behind, from the, you know, like from the driver's seat area or from the door area, if you look forward at that edge of the hood and I'll, I'll include a, a photo of that, um, it, that we can, uh, put in the, uh, in the show notes and I'll, let me drop this right in here into Slack right now so you can see what I'm talking about. Um, but the the gap there, yeah, you know, and and we've you know talked uh, in fairly negative uh, <laughs> I see what you're saying, ways, yeah. ways about you know panel gaps on the Tesla Model three. the gap on this one. You know, the the fit just didn't seem to be very good. It seemed like there was a huge gap there. And and those edges of the hood actually didn't seem to quite line up with the the door panel.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's an impossible look at what you've got coming together there. You've got uh, the just the actual physical panel gap uh, that goes off to the right uh, from this picture, which will be in the post. Um, But also you've got that that. Um, actual, like the edge of the hood that comes up and then it's supposed to join with that, that bone line or shoulder line. And there's another line from down below that's coming up at the, like the fender for that. There's a lot going on just in that single piece. That, yeah. That's I mean, just impossible. And, and
0: it's, and it, it's, you know, it's clearly a hard thing to manufacture and to, to get all those pieces lined up exactly right. Uh, you know, and I know it will the, fix it.
1: I know it, one word. What's that? seriously you could make that edge work if you used a piece of trim
0: yeah probably um but, you know, as is often the case, you know, with new models like this, you know, the the press car, you know, was a pre-production model, you know, and, you know, they sent a note along with that, you know, when they delivered the car, you know, that it was a pre-production model and that all the fit and finish, you know, might not be 100% representative. And so I actually drove by a local Nissan dealer the other day and, you know, took a look at a couple of new Altimas on the lot, you know, that were for sale. You know, to see if they were any better. You know, if they were, if they were more better, lined up better than this one, and they actually weren't. They were exactly the same as exactly. this one. So, you know, we'll see if this is something that they can improve on going forward. But, um, you know, that was that was the the one glaring thing that's that struck out stuck out to me about this.
1: Well, I think uh, as we've the, about seen, the look of it, uh, consumers are willing to accept a lot of variability. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i th- honestly i think i don't know at least how much, some consumers are yeah um that may not get as much i mean i, I guess if if that's what you see looking out at the driver's seat like constantly you're constantly staring at that it, that might be a thing that that bugs you um but otherwise i i think that's gonna just sort of pass pass by but that i mean that's that's a tough piece to make because you got the edge of the hood you got the skin that has to fold over and You've got a relatively, you know, sharp draw in the um, the fender that comes up yeah. behind it. Like that's that's just that's tough. I mean, I I I uh, I understand the challenge that Nissan has bid off for themselves. Um, <laughs> not sure if there's a better solution. Uh, so, what else? Which a hey, I guess which trim did you have?
0: It was the platinum, which is the, oh. the top at the top level trim. Did you have um, the VC turbo engine? No. The VC turbo engine is uh what they call what they refer to as late availability. Oh, so also, it's, and it's it's not you a,
1: had you had all wheel drive, so I think that's a yeah. front wheel drive only, right? Uh I'm not sure
0: about that. I think that may be a I would I would be surprised if that's front wheel drive only. I wouldn't I, because it's more powerful, I I would expect that, that may that may even be all-wheel drive only. Um, or certainly all wheel drive available. Uh, but they uh, so right now they have uh, an updated version of the two point five liter uh, four cylinder that, you know, that Nissan's been using for a while with so now with was, direct that was, injection.
1: That was fine. <laughs> I'm assuming it's fine. Yeah, that no, means- it, it's pre- it's
0: perfectly acceptable. You know, yeah. it's, it's one hundred and eighty nine horsepower. Um, you know, it's it's got. Plenty of performance, you know, performance is not, not an issue, you know, on this one for, you know, for what is a mainstream sedan, um, you know, the, the VC turbo, this is the, the variable compression, um, turbo four cylinder that they initially launched last summer on the new infinity QX 50, um, yeah, QX, yeah, QX50. QX something or other. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Trying to remember Infinity's nomenclature. Uh, yeah, Good it's the luck. QX50. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it uses this uh, fairly, you know, this kind of oddball linkage um, to, uh, mo- you know, the, that uh, changes, the mechanically changes the compression ratio in the engine dynamically.
1: Yeah, I still um, don't quite get how that works, but whatever. I'll look yeah. at it later. I, I need to see it in motion to sort of understand it's. It, it's it, cool. It,
0: yeah, it, it's it's a cool system, and yeah, you know, I, I I talked about it last year after I talked to an Infinity engineer about it uh, on on the show. Um, we talked about uh, you know, some of the benefits of that, and I'll, I'll find the, that episode and put a link to it. But anyway, that's not a, that's not actually available in the Ultimate yet. It'll be available at some point during the 2019 model year. Uh, they haven't said exactly when, but at some point. Uh, but So for now, there's just the 2.5 liter, uh, no more V6, um, still with the... Nissan Xtronic uh, CVT which you know Nissan does CVTs as well as anybody uh, you know they they uh, program them to behave more like conventional step ratio automatic transmissions uh, it feels good uh, performance was was more than adequate um, one thing uh, you know one of the the new features that they've added in the uh, the new Altima uh, is the availability of ProPilot assist. Uh, which is a first in this segment uh, really yeah you know, yeah Wow so that's uh, that's Nissan's you know semi-automated um, driving system that um, you know combines the adaptive cruise control and lane centering uh, and so, wait,
1: know, it, the, is it the first is it Nissan's first offering of propilot assist in the segment or is it the first car in the segment that can do those things
0: the first car in the segment that can do those things really Yeah.
1: I thought for sure there'd be somebody else that has that stuff already.
0: Nope. Uh, I mean, you know, you've got lane keeping assist and um, adaptive cruise control available on most of the cars in the segment now. But, um, you know, those those two systems kind of operate discreetly from each other. Uh, ProPilot Assist, you know, is one of the first systems that uh, that actually combines them under one control strategy. Um, and it's you know unlike Super Cruise Cadillac Super Cruise it's not a, it's a hands on system, so you know if you you can take your you know, if you take your hands off the wheel for more than you know five or six seconds you know it'll start uh, getting antsy and you know say you know hey put your hands back on the wheel please and um, there's no there's no driver monitor system other than just monitor you know looking at the the steering angle sensor um, to, uh, to see, you know, looking for those slight motions that you, you know, humans make when they're holding the wheel. Um, but you know, it's, it's the same system that's on the rogue. It launched on the rogue, uh, in the fall of 2016, late 2016. And then a couple of months later it, it, uh, came on the new leaf. So it's, so this is the, the third Nissan model to get it. Um, and it'll, it'll be coming on the, the updated Murano and, uh, Maxima, um, are coming this spring as well. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it, it's a decent system. Um, you know, it's not as robust as, you know, some of the other systems that are out there, uh, like, uh, like super cruise or, or even, you know, autopilot, but it, you know, it works okay. And, you know, in, in that it takes some of the load off of, you know, having to make sure that you're. Um, you know, staying in the middle of the lane. It does a pretty good job of lane centering at highway speeds. Um, you know, it's not recommended to use it, you know, around town or on rural roads. You know, it's not going to you know, if you're if you're driving down a twisting country road, it's not going to keep you in the lane. It will drift out of the lane. You know, it's it's That's got probably, limits on how much.
1: Also, by design that it has those yeah. limits, too, so you don't get too cocky. Yeah. Or too yeah, because
0: it yeah, because it's not really designed as an as a you know, a full time autonomous system, Um, you know, so it, it, you know, it's, it's not going to try to uh, keep it, you know, keep the car in the lane, you know, during fairly aggressive driving, but, you know, in fairly low effort uh, driving, you know, the kind of thing where you tend to get bored and your attention perhaps drifts off a little bit on the highway, it will keep the car on the straight and narrow and, you know, follow uh, highway curves without any difficulty um one other thing uh, that they've done in this one compared to some other recent Nissans that I've driven the um you know it's got their their latest infotainment system um you know with the you know the uh the pretty much you know the, incre- the increasingly um ubiquitous you know stand up uh display on top of the dash you know that kind of a ta- like a tablet mounted on top of the dashboard um unlike the leaf uh and the um, the Nissan Kicks that I drove uh, a couple months ago, um, this one actually has a really nice screen. You know, the, those cars, you know, they had the same the same system, but the, the actual the display, the physical display was not very good. You know, it was fairly low contrast, you know, not especially bright. Uh, hard to see in some lighting conditions. This is a much better quality display. Um, and so it was much more pleasant to use. And it does have support for Android auto and Apple CarPlay. And the Ultima also includes uh, USB type C ports in addition to uh, the, the old style rectangular type a ports. Uh, so if you have a newer, Android phone that uh, that uses USB-C, you can use that cable, uh, which gives you uh, faster charging than the uh, USB-A ports. You know, so you can get 15 watt charging.
1: Yeah, and I think that's going to start to become uh, more ubiquitous. I've I've started to see that um, in several vehicles that I've had. Yeah,
0: FCA has done it in you know in the new Rams and in the Jeep Wrangler. Um, GM's got it in the. Uh, the um, Silverado and Sierra, the new Silverado and Sierra. And I would expect, you know, most new cars coming, you know, most new redesigned vehicles coming to market in the next year or so are going to be, you know, adding USB-C ports in there.
1: Yeah. So it seems like Nissan at a time when sedans aren't really a thing. um, And that's, that's kind of a, Nonsense statement too. Like sales are down, but they still sell a few hundred thousand sedans as a segment. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, as as a segment, you know, midsize sedans, you know, still a you know a million and a half units a year. Um, yeah. So they've know,
1: invested heavily. Like this is this is a pretty comprehensive redesign. It's not just a refresh.
0: Yeah, no, no, it's a completely redone model. Uh, you know, it's a little bit more expensive than before. Uh, you know, starts at twenty three seven fifty. Um, the the platinum. Uh, all-wheel drive uh let's see that's like 33 is something, yeah, 30 is yeah 33 um so and you know it'll um it'll be available with the uh the VC turbo um in the, I think sometime in the spring uh, and that'll be available on the platinum as well um actually looking at this it looks like the strangely enough the VC turbo might be front-wheel drive only
1: I wonder I, I wonder what that's all about Um, Yeah,
0: that's that's kind of strange.
1: If it's maybe the uh, maybe the all wheel drive system can't handle the torque, or I
0: well, I mean, it's the QX50s all wheel drive.
1: Yeah, so that seems that's weird. I'm trying to make excuses for them. Maybe it's a a weight efficiency thing. I don't
0: know. Yeah, uh, you know, or it may just you know something to add in, you know, for 2020 model year.
1: Ah, that's true that way
0: that way when you do your you know your 20 when the PR guys do their 2020 model year update press release
1: they, can they have the something to ever. point to right yes. first ever the first
0: ever Altima with a VC turbo and all wheel drive
1: <laughs> yeah uh, that that must be it um, so the question i heard them talking this up on auto line and and so the line about the Altima is now it's you know it's grown so it's it's the classic sort of longer lower wider uh Except it's not, it's, uh, it's, it's
0: all, it's almost identical. It, it's like, it's within an inch on all dimensions um, to the, uh, well, to the previous generation.
1: They made it enough where they could say that it is without actually like, anyway, like, I guess my, my question is where does this leave, especially with the VC turbo engine? Um, where does this leave the Maxima? Cause it's, you know, the Maxima's is not really, it's kind of an odd man out. And I, I know that it, and
0: and it's always been kind of a, an odd man out, you know, it, because it, the, the Maxima is, you know, is slightly larger than the, yeah. than the Ultima. Um, you know, it's, it's always been a little more premium than the Ultima. Um, you know, I haven't seen, I haven't looked at all of the updates, you know, they, they're refreshing it for, The uh, for 2020 model year, uh, the Altima that is, uh, you know, it's got a new front fascia, new lights, um, you know, some interior updates. Uh, So, um, you know, but I haven't looked at the full list of everything that they've added in there. I know that, excuse me, it is available uh, with uh, ProPilot uh, on the Altima. The, you know, one, one area where there is a distinction is the Altima is still available with a V6. In fact, it's only available with a V6. Uh So no more V6 on the, on the, did I say Ultima? The Maxima yeah, yeah. is only available with a V6. And uh the Altima you know, is four cylinder only now. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, it's hard to say really.
1: Yeah. I, I just like, I, the Maxima crossed over like it because it had been that mid midsize model, and the Altima had been somewhat smaller. Then I don't know. I guess in the early two thousands, like two thousand five, two thousand six, something like that. Maybe a little earlier, two thousand two or whatever. They they made the Altima larger, which gave the Maxima, I guess, the ability to be this sort of semi premium. Like it became Nissan's Buick, in that sense. But you know, with those those that sporty reputation, and it still kind of has that, but. You know, it's in this place where it's somewhat luxurious, somewhat sporty, but not overtly in either direction. You know, it's not an infinity. It does it does
0: have a more aggressive look to it. It
1: does. I, I actually love the styling of it. I think it's been yeah. it's it was uh restyled. I don't I can't I can't remember when it was last restyled. Uh, but three, stayed, three years ago. It, is that new? I was gonna say it stayed yeah. pretty fresh. Like i like it. It's interesting, it's it's uh, it drives pretty well, you know. Um and it it is it is Comfortable and luxurious and still pretty decently entertaining to drive. The last time I had one, I liked it quite a bit, but it's it's just I I mean, I'm just confused about where it fits in their lineup. And I think Nissan is also confused <laughs> about it.
0: Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, the the Altima uh, or the Maxima has the same wheelbase as the previous generation Altima, which was 109.3 inches, um, and that's actually less than the new Altima. Yeah, the new Altima is 111.2, so the wheelbase grew by two inches, um, and the overall length of the Altima previously. Was one nine or is one ninety two point the overall length of the Maxima was one ninety two point eight, which is just shy of an inch longer than the old Altima, and it's now the new Altima is one ninety two point nine. So the the Altima grew by an inch, so it's it's a tenth of an inch longer than the Maxima, uh, and they're the same width. Uh, the new the new or sorry the same height. Um, the new Maxima the new Altima. <laughs> These names, the Called new the Ultima the is, is an inch lower <laughs> than the old Ultima. It's almost identical to the Maxima now. Um, you know, so it's, it, yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to make the case for why the Maxima still exists. Yeah. Other, other than, you know, having the V6, you know, at 300 horsepower, um, you know, which, you know, obviously gives it some extra performance and, you know, the styling,
1: yeah, and maybe the just the overall perception of the model. I think that that is actually one of the distinctions. Is the Maxima has a different uh, different buyer than the Altima. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's just just curious. It's interesting to me. <laughs> all right. Um, so, where, where
0: have you been driving?
1: Uh, so, I actually got another all new two thousand nineteen model. I got the Kia for two thousand nineteen Kia Forte EX. Um, Ooh, what would you think of it? Uh, so, uh. My my first impression is uh, that it's. Let uh, me um, pull up my notes here. Uh, <laughs> if, if we needed, well, just, just just by the way
0: you're hemming and hawing there.
1: No, no, no. Well, I, I actually have a lot of good things to say about it. Uh, you know, like I think if if you needed more proof that Kia's team uh, for styling are are masters at what they do, uh, the, the Forte is another example. Like it just the outside is really handsome. Uh, Kia says that they gave it some design touches from the Stinger. I'm not exactly seeing that, but it definitely looks very good. It looks refined. I think this is this is a car you can park next to the European sort of usual suspects, and I, I don't think it shrinks at all. It's just it's really crisp. It's really clean. Uh, it looks looks pretty premium. So those are all those are all positives in, in my opinion. Um, and to the point where I saw an earlier Forte this morning and I was like, oh, that's kind of blobby. It's it, that's was also not a bad looking car, but the new one looks better. Looks, <laughs> looks, expensive. And the interior also follows the same pattern. You know, the look of the instrument panel is, I think, is as good as you'll find anywhere. You know, it's a nice environment. The materials in the EX are pretty good. Uh, you know, it has leather seats with you know the heated seats and cool heated and cooled seats. This one has the, the moon roof. It's not super tight, you know it, it it's it's a small car, but it's not dinky small, so it's useful. Um, and all the controls are really well done and as Kia tends to do. Uh, and I, I think you know, for even the base model, the FE, uh, it's a lot of car for about eighteen thousand dollars. It has standard collision avoidance. Uh, the, there's an eight-inch display in there, standard. Uh, although I think you have to option up to get um, navigation and stuff. But the display will be there, at least for the rear view camera. <laughs> um, and there's their standard lane keeping assistance and Android Auto and collision avoidance. Uh, so this you know it's got a lot of decent like safety features that I think will help sell it. Um, the The issue, I think comes when you when you have you driven one? Not yet. I've got
0: right. one scheduled uh, right after I get back from CES. All
1: right, so I'll be interested to see uh, what you have to say about it because the the powertrain is the really interesting story here. It's got uh they all use the same Atkinson cycle two liter four cylinder and And so that to me is interesting that they're using that on its own rather than pairing it with the hybrid powertrain that you usually see an Atkinson cycle engine with. Because the thing with the Atkinson cycle is that it has a longer expansion. uh, There's a longer expansion period during the cycle, so it uses less fuel and it gets more work out of it. But by doing that, it... It also has less torques, less torque. And it it brings down the, the sort of the peak power. And so there's, it's powerful enough. You know, I'm actually impressed with the, the, they got 147 horsepower and 132 foot pounds of torque out of it. That's, those are decent two liter numbers, no matter what cycle. (laughs) Like
0: they're, they're, well, I mean, but by, by current, you know, by, you know, 2018, 2019 standards. So, you know, uh, a normal, you know, two liter four cylinder, naturally aspirated two liter four cylinder, you know, anywhere from 165 to 180 horsepower, you know, is actually not, you know, that's actually more typical yeah. for, you know, for, for an auto cycle engine, you know, as opposed to an Atkinson cycle.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's, it's not as low as I expected it to be. These, these are yeah. on par with like older two liter numbers. <laughs> um, but. You know, it, it it does okay. It does fine. The the thing that they managed to do also was pair it with a new um, they call it an IVT, so an intelligent variable transmission. It's CVT. Um, so that takes, I think, some of the edge off of the the lower torque figure because it does that torque multiplication thing at low speed that its CVT is is pretty good at, and is is. Actually smooth because it's it's stepless to a degree. Kia says that they've actually designed this CVT to to function like a conventional stepped automatic as much as they can. So th- it's in that middle ground. It's it's certainly a perceptibly smooth transmission if that makes any sense. Uh, you notice how unnoticeable it is. I guess it's just like ah, oh, it is a pretty slick transmission in this this car. Um, it's also a little sluggish off the line. And I think that's frustrating. Uh, oh,
0: and that's, that's, you know, because you've only got 132 foot pounds and it peaks at 4,500 RPM.
1: Yeah. There's that. And I think just in terms of just responsiveness, it's sluggish too. Just I like, there's a delay when you press on the pedals, like, what, what are you doing? Um, so I don't know if that's a calibration thing or if it's just, you know, the CVT needs to wind up a little bit before it goes or, or what, like it's. Once it just actually like, gets moving it, it's fine it'll it'll clip along um and, and that's a really interesting combo to me like i'm just uh, it it's it, and they engineered that transmission in-house like and normally with cvts uh a lot of the companies are using you know transmissions from from suppliers you know jatco is a big one i think nissan uses jatco um ford certainly does uh or they had um, and I you know I think there's Asian as well, and so there's there's a few different companies that make transmissions, and they sort of tweak them for the the automakers that buy them. The, the Hyundai and Kia have been both in their conventional automatics, and now with the CVT, they've been doing transmissions in house. And
0: also, a, their dual clutch transmissions are also done in house.
1: That's th- that's a big investment for them.
0: Yeah. Well, what, what's interesting is that you know they chose to use the the Atkinson cycle two liter. And a CVT in this car where, you know, even in their, their hybrids, like in the Sonata and the Hyundai Sonata That's hybrid, and the Kia Optima hybrid, they use the same two liter Atkinson engine in there, but it's paired, you know, their, their hybrid system, it uses a conventional step ratio, automatic, a planetary gear automatic instead of a CVT. And they have, you know, the motor, you know, goes in between the engine and the, and the transmission. So, you know, this this is a unique combination. You know, it's it this sounds like something that you would normally find in a hybrid. Right. But without the electric drive, except in Hyundai Motor Group's hybrids, they don't they don't use the CVT. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. so, and I so actually, it's kind of an oddball. Yeah. I actually really like the way their hybrids operate, too. And I think part yeah. of that is the stepped automatic versus the CVT. Uh mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's it doesn't it doesn't feel rubber bandy. It just it just goes down the road. It's the two liters. You know, it's a smaller four cylinder, so it doesn't have a ton of extra uh, vibration to manage. And it's, it's decently smooth. It 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 does what it does. And it's it's fine. I did find it interesting that if you want a manual, the only option for you is the um, the base, the FE model. And I'm assuming FE means fuel economy. But the CVT absolutely slays it. Uh, the man yeah. on, on I That's
0: fuel economy. that is that is that is odd. Branding, uh, I I would assume that at some point, you know the the fort the the current forte is you know fairly new. It I think it went on sale about six months ago, um, and I would guess that at some point. We will see an option for a more powerful engine, probably the the one point six liter turbo um because actually the previous generation forte e x um did use the one point six liter turbo so i'm I'm surprised that they're selling an e x with the same powertrain as the other trim levels,
1: yeah, it's the same i i'm i I checked it's the looked to be yeah. the same across the board and and like, you know, I, I think honestly, the other stuff that you get with the car is more important than the the engine in, in this class, and for most people, um, and and it does just fine. Uh, and it's also it's a lot of car in EX trim for twenty two thousand dollars. Like that, it's a it's a pretty good deal. Uh, yeah, no,
0: that's actually a really good value. You know, when you compare it to most other um compacts you know like c-segment cars of this size um you know when you're looking at the top trim level now you know it's not uncommon to get be getting into the 25 26 27 thousand dollar range
1: yeah and that that just seems that seems too much to me and and i know like we don't necessarily want to start buying our cars by the or we don't want to continue buying our cars by the pound i think that that has gotten us into trouble Um, but uh, you know, 22 for a car that's equipped this way feels about right. Like that doesn't feel too bad. Um, speaking of things that don't feel too bad, but also don't feel too good. <laughs> um, it uh, I wish it drove as good as it looked, you know, powertrain aside, which I think the powertrain is is quite slick. Um, the the ride is a little stiff. It doesn't doesn't really have the body control to to be as disciplined as you might find like a Volkswagen vehicle would be. And, and I that's part of Volkswagen's Secret Sauce, I understand. Um overall it feels solid enough, but it's I found it a little loud. The steering, the suspension, the dynamics are all kind of are kind of work-a-day versus the sort of bargain sports sedan uh checks that the styling is writing a little bit. You know, it's got it's a very basic platform. It's got a torsion beam rear axle and McPherson struts. You know, nothing nothing super fancy and all that is fine. And it's actually, it, it, it means good things for you as an owner, because all of that particular layout tends to be reliable and robust and durable. So those are all good things. It just, it, it's not as cushy as I like. (laughs) But it's it's not terrible. Well, uh, like I said,
0: you know, at some point we'll probably get, you know, a GT or a sport model that has the 1.6 liter turbo with the DCT and probably the the multi-link rear suspension that they have in the the Elantra GT. Uh, Because, you know, this is this this car you know shares its platform with the Hyundai Elantra um and you know base Elantra's you know have the same torsion beam set up on the rear axle um you know and the the upper trim levels like the 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 GT the uh, Elantra GT um you know use a multi-link rear end which does give it better ride quality and better handling
1: yeah and i, and I think that the, if you want it you'd be able to pay for it and again i think it's it's in that realm of like things that people aren't really going to care about unless they care about it. And then if it's available for them, they'll they'll buy it. But, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a solid little car for, for the money. It's a, it's a fantastic deal. And, And I think, uh, you know, Kia just proves once again, that they're, they're doing a lot of things very right. Uh, it just, it's just a car that, that calls attention to itself in a good way. Uh, and it delivers sort of on those promises. Um, you know it's 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 a nice place to spend some time. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. Um, I'm looking forward to tra- checking it out for myself in a couple of weeks. Um, so why don't we get into uh, some of the the stories we wanted to talk about this week? Uh, starting with um, you know, looking at you know small cars and and uh, weight being uh, a concern. Um, the other day, you uh, responded to a tweet uh, from James Gross, you know, the challenge, uh, finding a car, find a car model that is lighter weight now than it was at the turn of the century. Um, you know, with the, you know, uh, thing heavier is equal to worse for the environment. Uh, Just and
1: not necessarily true, but... Uh, yeah, well, yeah,
0: I mean, true, you know, because, you know, EVs tend to be heavier because, you know, batteries are bulky and, you know, they are arguably better for the environment than, you know, a lighter weight gasoline engine car or diesel engine car. Sort of. So, yeah. So, you know, it, you know, as as is often the case, you know, it's it's maybe a, a slightly oversimplified argument that is not entirely accurate. Um, yeah, you know, and your your response to his tweet, you know, was Miata. Quick draw. Miata. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, I, I did a little, you know, searching around, you know, looking looking at some some current models that I know, you know, are on the Lighter side of the spectrum, you know, and going back and comparing them, you know, pulling up specs from uh, from KBB.com, my my favorite uh, research site source for uh, for such things. And uh, you know, it turns out, you know, the Miata is pretty much the only car that is, you know, been stayed pretty close to the same weight. You know, actually, even since it since the first generation, the second generation model actually gained a little weight uh, from the first generation. But then, you know, it they took it back off and it's you know, it's now it weighs about the same as it did in 2000. It's it's within about, I think, six or or seven pounds.
1: I have to admit, I was slightly shaky uh, when I said me out. I was like, it's got to that's if if there's a car that's as light as it had been.
0: Uh, That's at, the just one. Just, uh, well, and, the and you're right. It 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 is you know, almost the same weight. Um, what um you know? But when I when I started thinking about this some more, uh, you know, one of the things that came to mind is the fact that you know, while yes, you know, the if you look at any particular you know vehicle nameplate, any particular model line. You know, there has been this inexorable trend over the last 25, 30 years, you know, go, even going back to the 1970s of each succeeding generation of a car getting bigger than the one before, weighing more than the one before, having more power than the one before. Um, and that that is true. You know, and, you know, the examples that, that James gave in his original tweet, you know, looking at the Toyota 4Runner, which went from 3440 to 3975 pounds, um, the they um, the Tacoma, you know, which went from thirty nine eighty to forty five hundred pounds. Um, it, so it's you know all, all of these vehicles have gotten significantly heavier. But you know the thing is, if you if you look at them just in that way, you know, looking at a nameplate, comparing the nameplate nameplate name over time as the succeeding generations got bigger, yes, they got heavier, but you know if you look at it from a slightly different perspective and look at you know comparably sized cars you know because the the name because you know each model line has tended to get bigger over time you know what we see now as a you know as a compact car is very different from what we saw as a compact car 20 years ago yeah, you know, so, you know, the, I, I wrote up a piece for Forbes and, you know, some examples, you know, if you look at, you know, the Honda Civic today, the, the, the current generation Honda Civic, you know, it has grown with every succeeding generation. I mean, if you go back to the first generation Civic in the 1970s. Oh, that's 16. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it is really small. It's the, know, is, it's, a,
1: is, it, is Honda the one that makes the Acti?
0: Uh,
1: I don't know. It's, don't it's key car so. size anyway. It's teeny.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was pretty close to that. Yeah, uh, you know, and you know, it's you know, it's small. It was smaller than you know what we think of now. You know, as a mini, um, or you know, even a Chevy Spark. You know, some of the smallest cars on the market today. Um, and you know, in two thousand, you know, the two thousand um, Civic was quite a bit smaller than it, than it is today, and quite a bit lighter. But the current Civic is actually almost exactly the same size as the Accord was in 2000.
1: Yeah. And I, I thought your responses were, were like they expanded on the theme. And they were they were thoughtful and, and it it makes a whole lot of sense. Like and we've said this before, you know, those those smaller those nameplates for the sort of sub models have now become the sort of midsize cars that just because of that sort of the odd, I guess it's like a form of entropy, right? Everything just everything just keeps growing.
0: <laughs> most most stuff. Not not everything, but most, yeah. Yeah. And you know, the the Accord, you know, is a is a great example. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it's today it's a it's a full size car. Oh, at huge, least yeah. At least by the EPA classifications. But if you go back to the very first generation Accord, you know, it was smaller than a Honda Fit. Yeah, and you know it was considered a midsize car, you know, back in the late 1970s. But
1: it came with a standard tape deck here in the U.S. That's true. So,
0: but it was it was dealer installed. It did not come from the factory that way.
1: <laughs> and you can get a Honda Matic. You can't get a Honda Matic today.
0: Nothing wrong with that. <laughs>
1: I was think there was a lot wrong with the Honda Matic.
0: Well, no, that's what I mean. There's nothing wrong with the fact that you can't get oh, it today.
1: Yeah, it's it like a two speed, like a power glide. Anyway, we are yeah. off track. Carry on. <laughs> uh,
0: so anyway, you know, I, I went through and I, I compared a bunch of these, you know, the another, exa- you know, the, the Corolla, you know, the, the new uh, Corolla that just came out from Toyota it, today is bigger than the Camry was in 2000. And yet it weighs less than that Camry did. And it has a lot more equipment in it. Same thing goes for the current generation Jetta versus the the Passat in 2000. You know, so all of those cars are lighter than the comparable equipped or the comparable sized vehicles 20 years ago. And but at the same time, you know, they have more airbags. They are massively stronger you know, in terms of occupant protection. That's true. You know, yeah. If you, if you crash test, you know, a, a, a 2000 Accord and compare what you, the results to a 2019 Civic, do the same thing with a Camry and today, you know, an old Camry and today's um, uh, uh, Corolla, you know, or the Jetta versus the old Passat, the, you know, those cars, you know, on, you know, on the same uh, crash tests will, perform much much worse and your chances of surviving in those old cars are far worse than they are in the current generation cars. And you know they the new ones are also while being lighter are also more powerful, they have better performance and they're more fuel efficient than they were then and they produce fewer emissions. So you know, you're getting all these benefits, and you've got all kinds of features that you couldn't get in 2000. You know, you were just talking about the Forte, Dan. You know, it's got heated seats in yeah, it. Yeah, it does. You know, and leather. Yeah, you know, well, but even so, well, or you know,
1: close, close you know, enough.
0: Re- regardless, you know, or things like a touchscreen audio system with support for smartphones you know, or navigation systems. What's
1: interesting is you
0: couldn't, you couldn't get that, you know, in a compact Kia or Hyundai or, or, or anything else 20 years ago.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's actually, that's an under the skin thing across all of the, sort of the automotive world. That's really interesting is this, this constant march of, of the technology that underpins the vehicles has made all kinds of features and functions and reliability, uh, really common and much less expensive than it used to be. And, uh, y- you know, the, the, the head units are the, the sort of interfaces that we use all those touchscreens, right. Uh, the, just the, the fact that those can run on, on tiny little electronics, you know, basically, you know, they're smartphones in, in most ways that are just serving a different purpose. They're so, you've got a, a a smartphone that does what all kinds of gear in 2000 would you know would be required to do uh so it's just like everything continues to sort of follow that moore's law on the on the electronic side where it gets smaller, more powerful, more you know, more capable and you know, uh, controller area networks and now um the sort of next generation of that stuff cuz can is actually pretty old. CAN is 25 years oh, yeah. old. Yeah, uh, yeah,
0: CAN CAN's ancient and it's you know, it's in the process of being replaced with uh, automotive ethernet.
1: Yeah. So just uh, you know, that has I mean that's what makes it possible for the Forte to have all of those features because it's not as expensive to add them. You know, uh, it's it's mostly some software, and uh, you know maybe a different different processor, but it's it's really you know uh, that was just stuff that just wasn't available. Back in the day, so uh, the the crash standard thing makes me a little sad because I like old cars. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you don't you especially don't want to get hit from the side in anything. From oh yeah, two thousand like it, and they were they were safer than anything that had, had been developed at, at that time. Yes, but you know it's twenty years ago. So if you go watch some side test uh, side impact tests from those times, you will walk away being like I I don't ever want to be. <laughs>
0: Yeah. One of those. Or, or, you know, you know, the another, you know, another test that they do now that they didn't, you know, they hadn't even thought of 20 years ago was the small offset rigid barrier test. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's one, you know, that's one that's actually, you know, relatively common in the real world. Yeah. You know, if you, you know, it's uh, having, you know, 25% overlap you know of basically it's it's equivalent to you know if you're driving down the road and one of the cars just across the center line and just you know there's a glancing blow of you know of the of the other car you know so it's not a full head-on but you know just a partial collision that actually does you know to a car that hasn't been designed specifically for that that actually does a shocking amount of damage to a car,
1: well, it's uh, yeah, I mean, or it, it, or a truck for that matter. It focuses all of that energy on a very small surface area, right? Like to actually absorb it. It's it, and you know it's even worse if you you know, think about like swerving to avoid the car, right? And now you've 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 gone off the side of the road and you hit a pole. Yeah, <laughs> with you know, uh, um, irresistible force meets an unmovable object—that's so worse. Because uh, at least with two cars, you know, they sort of they'll they'll react to the crash and they'll they'll sort of ricochet off each other. The pole's not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's a test, and I'm sure automakers really don't like that test to a certain degree because it's it's difficult and it it makes it, it,
0: it is a really hard one to do. But you know, every because it, because it gets evaluated on new cars. Um, you know, it's not actually even a legal requirement. It, there's no, there's nothing in the law, you know, the, 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 the uh, federal motor vehicle safety standards for, uh, occupant protection don't include small o- offset rigid barrier. It's something that came from testing that was done by IHS, the in- uh, insurance Institute for highway safety.
1: You want to make sure uh, you get those, those stars and those goods though.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it it is. I mean, the 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 real world benefit that it provides in protecting occupants, vehicle occupants in a crash is undeniable. I mean, it, it is a true benefit. And despite, you know, having to meet these much more rigorous tests uh, than than they ever had to do you know 10 15 20 years ago and you know roof crush is another one that they didn't have to do back then and and now you know all the, all the new cars undergo a roof crush test they you know they've still managed to make these cars lighter through using new materials using more aluminum using high strength and ultra high strength steels um, you know making individual components lighter. and you know at the same time you know that they've added all these features and think things like panoramic sunroofs you know look at how many vehicles Today right. have panoramic, you know, have big sheets of glass in the roof. Yeah. You know, you, you know the thing about glass compared to steel, it's a lot heavier.
1: It's super a t- a heavy. Typi- and it a, does, typical,
0: a typical panoramic sunroof in a car adds about a hundred pounds it, uh, to the weight of the car. It
1: also it doesn't absorb any crash energy. No. <laughs> so uh, that's all the impressive. The most impressive thing about all of that. Is they they've made these improvements and the cost when you adjust the dollars so that, you know, you're you're talking this sort of parity in terms of the the money, the cars have actually gotten less expensive.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, they they see, you know, or at least they have not gotten shockingly more expensive. Yeah, I mean, cars today are not inexpensive and affordability is very much of an issue. But um, you know, given given all the all the things that we've added to cars, you know, it's shocking that it that the price hasn't gone up a lot more.
1: Yeah, and, and we saw you know the the crash stuff. Uh, it's sort of this this uh, I guess this this sort of decade or this this twenty year period. Okay, so so from the from the two thousands, it's our emissions um, era. You know, we talk about the '70s as you know a particular. They, they, it's called the Malaise Era to a certain degree because it was a Carter quote, but also just it was the first oil crisis, and there was the EPA starting to really mandate fuel economy and um, emission standards, and so that that put a damper on performance, and and the cars reflected that. You know, uh, the. The thing that we see with crash safety needing to get so much better over the last twenty years is, you know, they did it. They did it with older methods, right? And and like mild steel. That's why in the mid two two thousands, you had cars with just huge pillars. Think of think of that, like the two thousand eight Malibu, right? Just big pillars. Visibility went down. the The door sills, the sides of the doors went up, and and a lot of that is is the side impact, and it's the just uh, the crash standards meeting those tests. And now, you know, they're, they're figuring that out the same way as they figured out performance and fuel economy together, uh, which we have no shortage of.
0: <laughs> and, it, and it's all it's actually all thanks to computing power. You know, I mean, they figured out how to do emissions and, and fuel economy improvements starting in the 1970s by adding electronic engine control systems and then they started adding electronics everywhere. And, you know, then over time they, they started using simulation to do a lot of crash testing and run through a lot of iterations before they ever built prototypes. And that's what, you know, today when they're designing vehicles, you know, they will run thousands or tens of thousands of crash simulations on a vehicle design before they build a single prototype and you know that helps them optimize the uh, the structure you know and you know it's a combination of using new materials newly developed materials that didn't exist 25 30 40 years ago and also manufacturing techniques for how they do that you know so today you know you find things like um, what they call tailor rolled blanks uh, for, you know, for B pillars and, you know, and other parts. So, you know, it used to be that, you know, when they would stamp out a a body part, they would, you know, you would have a flat sheet of steel or aluminum or, you know, whatever it was. And it was uniformly thickness, uniform thickness all the way across. Now what they do is they will actually roll sheets of steel, you know, um, that have varying thickness across the sheet that is specifically designed to, for that structure, and then they will slice that out and stamp it. And now you have a stamping that will have thicker areas and thinner areas where they need the stru- where they where they need extra strength and where you know thinner areas where they want to allow it to. Um, to actually be able to deform to uh, absorb that impact energy, you know. Another interesting thing that Honda did on the the current generation Civic when they designed it, you know, there's some uh, there's some rails at the at the back, you know, that go through the trunk that extend back, you know, from the the main the central body structure, um, you know, that the bumper is connected to. It's connected to those two rails, and when they you know these are hydroformed steel rails, so they're they're box section steel, uh, and then when they they heat treat it, you know uh, when you, you when you heat treat steel, you can make it stronger. Um, you know by by you know the way you raise the temperature and and, and cool it rapidly, it it changes the chemistry of the steel, and makes it stronger. But what they do is when they heat treat it, they actually have selective areas of that rail where they actually run um, cooling water through it so that there are very specific sections of the rail that are kept softer than huh. the rest of the rail so that they can have a controlled deformation. So when there's a crash, this rail will comp- will um, actually bend in very specific ways to absorb the crash energy so that it doesn't get transferred into the passenger compartment.
1: That's, that's really, that's, so they're tempering it like selectively. Yes. Huh.
0: You know, it used to be, you know, you, you would, you would treat, you would heat treat the entire piece of metal, you know, and then, or temper it, you know, to, to get the, the properties you want. And it would be the same properties throughout the entire, that entire piece. Now they can take a piece of metal and they can have very different properties at very specific locations in it in order to get it to behave in a particular way.
1: Huh. Yeah. See, see, there's a lot that's going on with the metal benders. You want to talk about innovation, uh, like that, all that stuff, you know, the Cadillac CT six, actually the details of that body structure are pretty impressive too.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, that, that was the first uh, production vehicle where they actually were able to GM came up with a way to weld aluminum to steel.
1: Yeah. Without the galvanic corrosion, that yes. happens and that's that's really like a the fact that they're welding aluminum to steel like you can't do that in your garage with like your your Lincoln you know ready arc or whatever like, it's <laughs> no just, they use different heats different you know just that's not going to happen but uh, once you put those two metals in contact with each other they act like a battery so GM figured something out I'm not sure what or they just don't care
0: No, they, 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 they actually came up with some, uh, some unique manufacturing processes to do that. You know, another, another interesting one is, um, uh, on the Acura NSX, uh, the structure of that, you know, there's, there's some areas where they, um, are joining different type different grades of aluminum. And what they did was they, you know, they actually initially joined them, um, with, um, uh, using industrial adhesives, and the adhesive actually acts as you know, it joins the aluminum uh components. Um, and oh, then there's actually they're also joining uh steel uh reinforcements there because where they attach the suspension uh suspension uh components, and so they're joining different grades of aluminum and steel together, and they're using the industrial adhesive as an insulator to, to keep those. Uh, different metals from actually coming into physical contact with each other while huh. still joining them. And that prevents the the corrosion.
1: That's, I mean, that's really interesting. And, and structural adhesives are a thing that have gotten more and more prevalent in use. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, it's, it sounds simple, right? But uh, it's one of the reasons why cars perform better in crash tests. It's why they're uh, tighter, you know, uh, to, to drive. They just they feel better. And it, it's they got they got glue in places where they didn't. <laughs> Before.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, you know, and and you know a lot of you know there, there's um, if you're interested in you know looking at some some more details of you know kind of the overall trends of how vehicles have changed over the last uh, 40 years. There's uh, an interesting report that gets published every year uh, by the EPA, uh, their fuel economy trends report that has a lot of fascinating data in it. You know, and there you know there's one particular table in there that uh, you know kind of is an overview of Fleet average fuel economy, average weight, average size. You know, since nineteen since they started tracking this stuff in nineteen seventy five, and you know, it turns out that in nineteen seventy five, you know the the average weight of the entire uh, U.S. vehicle fleet was four thousand and sixty pounds.
1: Ah, we're above that
0: now. Uh yeah uh by uh oh no uh it's sixteen pounds lower it's is it really? four thousand and forty four pounds yes
1: I'm surprised with the proliferation well we'll we'll, we'll pass that soon <laughs> uh,
0: not necessarily because you know if you look at you know where a lot of the growth in the market is in smaller utilities that are you know under four thousand pounds true. and they're
1: most like those are essentially cars you know it's not yeah like, not like the body on frame trucks of the old days so. That's yeah. that's interesting, um, and and at the same
0: time, while weight hasn't gone up, we've you know more than doubled fuel 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 economy from of the av- the average fleet fuel economy from thirteen miles per gallon to over twenty five miles per
1: gallon. Yeah, uh, cars cars are pretty pretty amazing. Um, do you know the? I think the very first car to use uh, computer analysis of of its its structure. During the design phase?
0: Not off the top of my head, but I have have a feeling you know the answer to this question.
1: Valiant. Really? In 1959, when they were designing Valiant. Uh, they i i don't know whether it was like finite element i don't think it was like finite element no else, it wouldn't have it was- been
0: they wouldn't have had the computing power to do finite element that that didn't come along till the 1970s
1: okay uh they ran lots and lots and lots of of uh mathematical models of it just to to figure out you know the the structural rigidity and and you know increase its um its its, its torsional strength uh at least there's the, if you can find um I think it's popular science. If so if you go to Google Books, all the popular science stuff is is there from way back. So you can find uh, you know 1959 or 1960 Valiant was like a, a cover car for them. And and that was one of the things that I I remember reading was like they used computers to figure out the structure and those early Valiants feel very tight. <laughs> compared to the other stuff you know the unibody uh which was rare for the time but it's it's not like you think about uh, you know they don't build them like they used to and it's like yeah back in the day when they They built them a hell of a lot better when they when they figured this stuff out like it it made a big difference then and it, it continues to you know make a big difference now i just thought it was it was wild that they used computers for it back then but
0: yeah all right so,
1: moving along. Clearly, we are super geeky.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the uh, Toyota Supra is coming back uh, in a little over a week. Uh, we're going to finally see the full production version. Actually, there's there's some leaked pictures yeah, of it out I was there. Say,
1: we've seen it in yellow. We've seen it in red. Yeah. <laughs> Uh,
0: but it's going to be officially revealed at the, uh, at the Detroit auto show, um, in about a week and a half. Um, but, uh, the last generation Supra, which w- I guess was the fourth generation in the, in the 1990s, um, was, you know, it, it's you know kind of one of those, uh, legendary Japanese sports cars. Um, although not not so legendary that it sold in such huge numbers at the time oh, that it, ex- it prompted Toyota to to keep it in production. It was but.
1: expensive. and like it was part of that class of the last generation of of sports cars of its type when you know, the Japanese economy was just humming and right. Uh, you know the RX, the FDrX seven is in the same same era, same class as as this car and the 300 ZX uh, twin turbo. Um, or just the 300ZX, and you know the the Mitsubishi 3000, same thing. Like they were all these super sophisticated, sort of bonkers supercars that they were. They were just they were expensive to buy here in the states, but they offered a lot of performance and sophistication for relatively short money. And so they they were this 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 touchstone for a certain generation of us. You know, um, that Supra. I remember that Supra from being in high school and just that I I liked the RX7 better but that that car was a that was a hell of a car <laughs>
0: yeah well um uh, a uh, prime example of that last Supra uh from 1994 um there's one that's out there that has just over 7000 miles on it um which you know for a car you know that old is is pretty good that's pretty
1: low mileage that's that's a, you got to uh, replace every seal in it yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, because it's probably been sitting, you know, in a in a garage or a warehouse for the last twenty years. Um but um uh, the uh the owner uh recently put it up for sale on Bring a Trailer and um it went for a hundred and twenty one thousand dollars.
1: Yeah. So how do you feel about that?
0: I think that's just ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I mean it was it was a nice car. You know, it's not worth hundred and twenty grand. Uh, Come on, I don't care how few miles it has on it.
1: You know, so, so low miles cars, and I have one in the driveway. Low miles cars are a nightmare because that means they haven't been driven enough, and so they they get you know they get rickety. You know, they, they, it's almost like they get rigor mortis just from sitting. You know, everything sort of just just wears. You know, it just it, cars need to be driven and. You know the low miles cars. Yes, like it's beautiful. It, it, it like looking at the pictures of this, it looks showroom perfect. But with seven thousand miles on it too, you, like
0: without without you know a, a pretty thorough rebuild, you know it's not really going to be something that you can drive. You know, I mean unless you want to keep it in a in a museum or something, you know, it's yeah. just it's not worth it. It's,
1: it's crazy. That's stupid money for yeah. So I mean, you you would honestly spend the same. Restoring one, <laughs> for sure, yeah. to the same caliber. So there, there is that. But you know, cars are not an investment. It, it just most
0: cars are not an investment. Yeah. There, are, there are a few that could be considered that. You know that you know where they're you know very, extremely low volume. You know, but you know, old Supras are not that rare.
1: It's a. I mean, it's a fun car. It's it's kind of a oh, shame because yeah. with seven thousand miles on it, you're going to be really gun shy about. Driving it, I mean, I hope that the new owner isn't. I just drive the damn thing, enjoy it. It's only metal, yeah. you know. <laughs> like, just go, right. go, have a good time. Uh, it's got a turbo 2JZ, uh, which is, uh, I mean, that's a, it's a hell of an engine. Uh, it, this, it is the stuff of legend. All of you, it's, it's all of the sort of tropes and memes and whatever like that. It, that is the car that embodies all of that. It's a twin turbo six speed Supra. <laughs> Yeah. Like all of the little numbers and stuff, like it, that, that's the car that carries them. So it's it's a it's a worthwhile sort of good time to to actually use it. Uh, I, I just you know it it'll be interesting though uh, tomorrow. Um, so it'll probably be on the next episode of the podcast. But tomorrow I'm talking with um, Haggerty uh, Insurance because they uh, they put out a, a release uh, not too long ago. That said, you know, Gen Xers and millennials are now the majority in the uh, classic car world. Um, so uh, tomorrow I'm going to talk with, um, with, uh, who am I talking with? Uh, Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan Klinger. Oh, Jonathan Klinger? Yeah. From, yeah. from Haggard. I almost said hi. I, I will. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a really interesting point. And I was kind of waiting for it to happen, right? Because, it, since time immemorial for me, every car show has been a sock hop and that's, that's cool. I like cars from the fifties and sixties. And I, I really like the hot rods from that era too. Cause it's just, they're fascinating. Uh, but it, now there's this, you know, you got shows like Radwood and stuff where there's this, this group of, of us that we, we actually appreciate the cars from that malaise era, from the eighties, from the nineties. And so you're going to see more of these. And it's cool that they're, they're kind of getting their due. Um, but that's a stupid price (laughs) for that car. That's, that's too much money.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, my, my Miata, you know, is relatively low mileage, you know, given its age, it's a 1990 with, you know, just shy of 60,000 miles on it, you know, and I, you know, I take it out, you know, when the weather's nice, I take it out and drive it at every opportunity. Um, you know, and I, you know, I put a couple thousand miles a year on it um, and, you know, I, I love it, you know, and then, you know, in the wintertime, you know, it doesn't get exposed to salt, but, you know, I, I make sure to, you know, go out in the garage every week and fire it up and let it run for 10 or 15 minutes and, you know, just keep the fluids circulating and, you know, keep everything in, in, in good shape. Um, you know, and that's, you know, that's the way an old car like that should be, you know, I mean, you're, you know, you're probably not going to want to use it as a, as a daily driver, but, you know, it should be exercised regularly and used for what a car is supposed to be used for.
1: Yeah. Although, you know, I hope that whoever had the $120,000 to buy this does whatever they want with it and enjoys it whatever they do with it, however they, what, do. yeah, I guess
0: whatever, whatever gives them pleasure
1: because right, it's not my car so,
0: <laughs> or your money.
1: I clearly, I have opinions and I have expressed those opinions and now I will say, do what you want with it because it's your car. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, you know, I don't, I don't think we can get any better than that. All right. One more
0: story, uh, which kind of falls on from a previous discussion we had about, uh, uh EV charging, you know, uh, high speed EV charging and, you know, the need for, uh, you know, um, taking some care in terms of figuring out where you put, uh, charging stations to, you know, in order to make sure there's enough capacity to actually support the vehicles. And it was, you know, I, I did a radio interview, uh, with somebody the other day, um, about this, you know, t- talking, about this some more, uh, because there was some story, some stuff that came up, um, you know, some stories that came up with, uh, Uh, you know, more Tesla owners complaining about, you know, lining up, you know, waiting for superchargers. Um, And then when they finally get to the charger, you know, because all the chargers are in use, they're not running at full speed. You're not getting the full 120 kilowatts of charging power. You know, they're getting like 20, 25 kilowatts. It's taking a lot longer to charge. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, companies are doing, you know, to, Try to mitigate that is putting big battery packs, you know, backup battery packs, you know, on these charging stations to make sure they have enough capacity and enough power, you know, to f- support, you know, full speed charging on these things. Um, this story that you found, Dan, is kind of from Green Tech Media is kind of interesting. Um, another alphabet company that's being spun off. Um, you want to talk about it a little bit?
1: Yeah. What I found interesting about it was that. Uh, You know, batteries right now are sort of you default to lithium ion. Like that's just the sort of most common uh, technology, certainly in the cars um, and for grid storage. But uh, when you get that to to scale up, uh, A, it's it's expensive and B, it it can't really time shift the energy consumption beyond, you know, 24 hours or so like you store up the energy when the sun's shining and you use it at night um, so when you try to extend that out um that, that that storage what you're really looking at is a solution that's more like um an electromechanical solution right with will pump water or some some other way of getting longer term storage of that That excess energy to be used when it's necessary, you know, when when it's it's not viable or to to make it in another renewable way. So, um,
0: yeah, so you can do things, you know, you said pump water, you know, you can use solar power to run a pump. That you know pumps water up into a reservoir, and then when the sun is gone, you can let that power run or let that water run back down through a turbine to generate hydroelectric power.
1: Yeah, it's I mean it's super clever, and Mm -hmm. I I I think it's a very elegant approach. Um, But there's you know battery battery chemistry comes into play as well, and there's a lot of different sort of competing um, research going on, and not even competing, but just sort of parallel. Uh, research because you know lithium ion batteries are expensive and, and other chemistries are also expensive and you're using uh, you're not being super renewable or environmentally friendly when you're mining you know precious uh, rare earth materials either. So uh, they're trying to find ways of storing energy in molten salt, uh, which is what this this company um, uh, Malta uh, was uh, that was spun out of alphabet. Uh, is is doing. And I don't I don't know exactly sort of the, the chemistry that they're using and, and and sort of how they're they're doing it. But basically it, it heats the salt and then um they they get the the energy out of that. Uh and it, it's much less expensive than than lithium ion. And they're trying to build out a full scale plant and get it on the grid to to sort of learn how it's how it's going to work. And it's not really something that You're going to see in your cars, but it's something that you're going to see like like we were talking about at those those uh, supercharger stations or something. It's it's just you know like the battery.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a it's a form of of large scale you know stationary storage. It's not it's not for mobile applications.
1: Right, and I heard I don't think it was Malta, but I heard another uh, very fascinating interview with uh, another local company that sort of spun out of MIT, where they're saying like, look, if you want something, if you want batteries to be as cheap as dirt. Make them out of dirt, <laughs> and so they're they're working on things like where where they're you're not using um really exotic materials uh you're trying to use off the shelf components um but some of the problem with that too is that y- you you run into the limitations of uh what those those off the shelf components are are designed for, so there's a couple things going on like the idea works on paper, then you've got to move the idea from from paper to that test plant. But the test plant has to be, uh, if you want to do it at scale, it's almost like you have to test it at scale. And I think that's the the point that they're at now is, is there, they were spun out of um, spun out of alphabet and they're, they're, I think they've, they've built the funding or their next step is to say like, well, look, if we're going to make a big battery installation, we need to make a big battery installation because otherwise we're building all kinds of custom stuff around this. Even just like, you know, Um, cranes and stuff like that, you know, like uh, because that's, you know, gravity storage is is another thing that that uh, is coming up. I I didn't realize there were so many different approaches to just like how do we store How do we convert this like, you know, solar or um, even just, you know, natural gas, electricity? How do we convert it into a form that we can then uh, tap uh, in a sustainable sort of non- polluting way. And so you think about, okay, well, we convert it into kinetic energy, right? So where it's just you're dropping weights and those are spinning gears and that spins a turbine and that I, I don't know. It's very, very fascinating.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, and and one of the The keys to doing this, you know, that because one of one of the issues, one of the big issues with renewable energy, you know, whether it's uh, wind or solar, particular, it's not so much a problem with hydro. That tends to be fairly consistent, but wind and solar, you know, tends to be inconsistent, you know, for various reasons. And so, you know, what you need to do is capture as much of it as you can when it's available, and you know, store it. You know, so that you can have a consistent availability of it, a a consistent availability of power to the users um, while, you know, capturing it intermittently. And so, you know, things like what Malta is doing and, you know, various other schemes for for storing large amounts of energy are important. But the other piece of that, you know, is you, you know you want to make the, the energy transfer process as efficient as possible as well. You know, cause one of the, if you're storing energy, you know, from, you know, that's generated in one way in, you know, some different sort of medium, you don't want to have a lot of losses right. when you're going back and forth between those, because that you know kind of negates the, the purpose. So you, you want, every, you know, the, when you're going back and forth between, you know, storing it in molten salt and going back to electricity, um, that's, that's, there's got to be um, maximum efficiency, uh, tra- transfer efficiency there. Yeah,
1: and it seems like what they're doing is they're using, so they're using a heat pump to actually get the energy into the salts or into any anti- an antifreeze liquid. So either heating or cooling, um, and then they use a Stirling engine, uh, or they they call it a you know a heat engine. To me, that's a Stirling engine. Um, yeah, where it's just you know the 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 medium keeps transferring and cooling, and and it runs the cylinder um, to get the energy back out. So yeah, that, I mean that that has promised all of those things on their own are sort of pretty well understood. And you put the technologies together and the cost can, can be kept down. They're not exotic in that sense. Um, they need to run and, and develop some, um, some actual data uh, about, you know, how it's, how it's going to work and uh, maybe find the, find the problems <laughs> um, because, you know, that, that long-term storage is really, really the key i mean think about like a tesla power wall right like that's that's power for your house uh but it's it's still like it's not it's not a real long
0: it's uh, it's fairly small scale
1: um but what if you could store power for months uh that it seems like uh the the holy grail um of, of getting it there so it's cool and and battery technology here could translate into cars, although this, again, like this is sort of the slow, steady kind of thing. I, I doubt that we're going to see molten salt batteries running sterling engines in cars. Uh, but, you know, there's just always learning that can transfer.
0: Yeah. And, you know, they, they probably won't be powering the cars directly, but they, you know, like you said, they, they could be powering the high speed um, DC chargers right. that, uh, that get them back on the road quickly.
1: Right. Or a range extender. Or I, yeah. mean, I mean, range extender might be a little bit of a stretch. Either, either way, like, you know, and I, I think that the next breakthrough in battery tech uh, is going to come from one of these industries versus the automotive industry, because the automotive industry, they're working on it, but their demands are like, we need immediate power now <laughs> versus like, no, we need some power later. It's it's a little bit different. And that's mostly my opinion, but <laughs> we'll see. All right. Yeah
0: let's uh, we got a couple questions uh, before we wrap it up um, one uh, from my buddy former colleague Chris Terry uh, asked uh, on Twitter did reality bite future of AVs in a couple of months of, uh, the last couple of months of 2018 saw so a lot of doubting Thomas type pieces in December um, yes it did. Yep. <laughs> In fact, you know, over the the course of the last year, year and a half, you know, um, the the trend I saw from all the people I talked to in the automated vehicle industry is, you know, the the realization that there's still a lot of challenges that they're trying to figure out. You know, uh, whether it's you know weather, um, you know, figuring out the the prediction engines, you know, for predicting what you know, particularly pedestrians are going to do next. Um, you know, just general characterization of or classification of the the objects that the sensors see um you know it's it's a really hard problem to do and you know the the rollout of the stuff is going to be a lot slower than you know a lot of proponents were were projecting a couple of years ago um so, you know, it's it's going to be tough for everybody. And, uh, you know, this is an area we'll be talking about more, you know, going forward. Um, the other question was from Jeremy Kroll, came in via email um, and uh, says, can you please give us some recommendations of magazines for people that would like to know the current and possible future state of the automotive industry? Well, we should make Most a magazine. People- <laughs> most people think of, yeah, there's a good way to turn a large pile of cash into a tiny one. Um <laughs> Well, most people think of car driver road and track motor trend and automobiles car magazines but from my past experience admittedly years ago they were more about cars overall and not the technologies that will shape the industry sadly some say magazines are old-fashioned these days and some people think uh that they're too slow to be of any consequence uh in these times of 24 7 information but i think that for long-term long-form informational stories magazines are still some of the best places to go i completely Um, agree Yes. Um, you know, and I think, you know, one of the things you want, you're going to be looking for, you know, based on, on the question here, you know, rather than the kind of general interest stuff that you're going to find in the buff books, you know, there's, there's a lot of great content in those magazines, but, you know, and you're occasionally going to find some, some interesting technical articles, you know, especially, you know, some of the stuff that Don Sherman writes in car driver and, and Frank Marcus does in motor trend. Um, but, you know, I think if you're really looking for a deeper dive on some of this stuff, you know, you, you're going to be looking for some of the trade publications, you know, and, you know, one that I can always recommend is um, – Automotive engineering magazine. Yeah. Uh It's the it's magazine put out by the Society of Automotive Engineers. Um, features a monthly column by some guy with a beard uh, talking about autonomous vehicles every month. <laughs> um,
1: I, it's funny. I have an, S, I have an automotive engineering uh, magazine tab open right now because they, the, they had an article about the Kia CVT. Okay, um, but uh, uh, um. I, I I was going finding back issues of that when I was in college, because uh, the same thing like it's it's a completely different world. You'll be blown away if you've never looked at one one of those issues. Like even just the ads, you'd be like, "What the hell is this stuff?" <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you know, it's it's not like the Viagra replacements that you'll find in Car and Driver. It's it's like actual like bearings and tie rod ends and stuff. It's really even that's just interesting. Learning the suppliers and the uh, you know all of, all of that aspect of it um what about uh automotive news? I know it's kind of expensive, but I- yeah
0: um you know the the um there 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 is some good there there's i mean there's a lot of great content in automotive news um you know if you're looking for more in depth technical stuff you know the the articles in automotive news tend not to be so long form they tend to be you know relatively shorter articles. Um, but you know, there's some great stuff in there. Um, you know, especially stuff that, uh, Rich Truett writes on, you know, some, on the engineering side, um, oh. the work that, uh, the mobility team there is doing now, uh, led by Sharon Cardy and, and, uh, Pete Bigelow, uh, recently joined the team there after, uh, leaving car and driver. Um, and, you know, so there, there's some, some great work being done there. Um, so, uh, you know, I would take a look at that. You can, you can read, you know, some number of articles a month, um, for free online. Um, you know, and then the, the magazine, you know, if you want to get the, it's a weekly, um, comes out every Monday and I think it's 99 bucks a year. If I'm, if I recall correctly, um, Another one to take a look at, you know, is Automotive World. Uh, if you go to automotiveworld.com, uh, you know, they've got their magazine and, you know, they've got, uh, you know, a lot of good stuff in there as well. Um, but, you know, generally, you know, I would, I would look to towards some of the, the more trade oriented publications like those uh, for, you know, for this sort of
1: content. Yeah. It, the, the enthusiast press exists for it's sort of its own purpose. <laughs> Where, like, I think if if you're in the in the business or you just want to understand the nuts and bolts of it without so much uh, purple prose, um, those three are really the the places place to go. And and you know from overseas, like, what's the Swedish one? Is it Technikens Varld? Um, there, there's there's a, sure. a bunch from Europe that are also yeah. interesting, but you have to be able to translate them or find any English language versions of them. Some of them have English language versions, but, uh, yeah, those three are probably a good start. All right. So with that, let's call it a week. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's good. So happy new year, everyone. And we'll see you next time. All right. Bye.